Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful that we get to gather like this with one another in the name of Jesus to remember who you are and what you've done, to celebrate the good news of the kingdom, and to walk in faithfulness and obedience to what you've commanded. You've asked us, commanded us to do this and to not forsake it. And so we are grateful that we're able to do this in a place where we have the freedom to do so without fear of persecution or hindrance. We can come here gladly and sit in a comfortable room and contemplate the truth of your word. And so we pray that you would be near to us, help us to see correctly who you are. Help us to understand and remember and believe the truth about you, that you have made a way for us, that in your infinite goodness, in your infinite love, in the overflow of abundance out of yourself, you have given to us this gift, this gift of faith in your son, that you've given to us him, that you've sent him, that he might live the life that we were meant to live, that he would die the death that we deserve to die, and that he wouldn't stay dead, that he would resurrect and therefore create this hope for us that we might share in that life, that share in that death and share in that resurrection. And so we pray that you'll help us, God, to see the infinite glory and majesty and worth and value of yourself. That we would not just read these words and hear an interesting story, but instead our hearts would be enlivened, enriched, reminded that we would be joyful in our salvation because of what Christ has done for us. And so as we consider these words that he speaks to the leaders of your people in this passage, Lord, we pray that he would speak to us, that we would hear what he says and that our hearts would heed it and that we would increase our understanding of you and that that increased understanding would lead to increased love for you and that that increased love for you would result in right and faithful worship of your name. We need you. We can do nothing good apart from you, so we ask for you to be near to us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So when I was like 12, 13, my family took a, a big vacation to the city of New York City. And it was very fancy, and we took airplanes uh, to and fro, and I felt like a fancy boy. And I got a brand new winter coat, and I felt like a fancy boy. And we went to museums, and we saw shows, and we did all these cool things in New York. And one of the things my dad always loved to do would be to do expensive things, do fancy boy things. And so he took us to a fancy restaurant in New York. I, I can't remember if it still exists today, but it was called the Russian Tea Room. And it was famous. They had a famous chef, and they made fancy food. It's where the, the dish chicken cordon bleu, I believe, was invented, the chef made that up. Let's stuff chicken and then fry it. I feel like somebody else thought of that in Louisiana first, but whatever. <laughs> so we went to this place called the Russian Tea Room. And it was very fancy. The red leather seats and the waiters wearing kind of tuxedo clothing and all of the 
kind of very fancy dining experience you would expect, which was completely lost on me. I was like 12. I was like, whatever. Do they have fried chicken? No? Well, I hate it. Uh, and so that was kind of my attitude toward it. But I do remember specifically what happened with my father as we placed our orders. My parents ordered me something they thought that I was like, I would like, and they were wrong. They ordered something they thought my sisters would like, and they were wrong. But my dad was very excited because they had rack of lamb at the Russian tea room. My dad wanted to be a fancy boy, and he ordered rack of lamb. And the waiter said, very good choice, sir. How would you like that prepared? And he said, medium well. And the waiter stiffened and said, very good, sir. And then he leaves. And within five minutes, the chef from the kitchen comes out into the dining room in his perfect white outfit with his long white apron with no stains on it. He's gotten no messes and his fancy hat. And everybody's like, oh, it's the chef. It's, oh, look, it's the chef. Where's he going? He's going to our table. And I can't do a French accent, but pretend. He said, sir, I have come to understand you've ordered the rack of lamb. And my dad said, yes. He goes, and you've asked for it medium well, is that correct? And my father said, yes. He said, sir, I don't want to be argumentative, but I will not prepare it this way. <laughs> and my, my dad said, what do you mean? He said, I'm sorry, sir. Medium rare is the most well done I am prepared to cook this meat for you. However, I would like to suggest that you allow me to prepare it for you the way that I think it should be prepared. And if you don't like it, I'll be glad to give you anything else on the menu that you would like. And my dad was like, oh, okay, medium rare, I guess. Very good, sir. So he goes to the back and he <laughs> cooks the rack of lamb, medium rare. It comes out. My dad loved lamb. He just loved it. He thought it was delicious. Any chance he got to eat it. He said it was the best lamb he'd ever eaten in his entire life. He had no idea that he was overcooking it 100% of the time that he ate it. Uh, and it changed everything. Once he realized the way it was supposed to be, he changed his mind. He changed his mind. He said, medium rare is the only way to do lamb. And I was like, cool. This chicken is horrible. Can we leave? Uh, so I share that story because I think it's pertinent. It's, it's, it is the issue that we're dealing with in our text today. This idea of hearing the good news, hearing the way things are meant to be, the way things are supposed to be, and changing one's mind, repenting, turning toward what is good and right and away from that which is foolish, like medium well lamb. So let's, uh, let's get into our, our text, verse 23. And when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So the verse begins with this idea of he entered the temple. Now, it's important for us, I think, to recognize that isn't the same as what we would think. If we were to translate this into our vernacular, we would say, when he entered the church. And so we would think, Jesus kicks in the door like the Kool-Aid man and comes up on stage and just starts preaching. Like, get out of my way, Carl. You're a terrible preacher. I'm here, right? That is not what Jesus was doing. The idea of him entering the temple would have been like going into the courtyard where rabbis were known to enter with their followers and their disciples, and maybe others would come, and they would teach, and, they would, and that would be happening. That was just a normal thing. 
So Jesus didn't bust into the temple and take over. So when he comes into the temple, the chief priests and the elders, so the leaders of God's people, come up to him as he was teaching, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority? So they saw him come in, and a crowd would have quickly gathered around Jesus, because that's what happens 100% of the time that Jesus opens his mouth. A crowd gathers around him, but he was not a recognized or approved teacher here. And so these leaders felt the need to question his authority. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So he's already come in, he's already got his people around him, and he's already begun to teach. So now they're interrupting him to ask him this question. The Jewish leaders at this time did not know what to do with people like Jesus. They weren't sure what to do with people like John the Baptist who came before him. These men who just kind of show up and start doing stuff. They didn't go through our processes. They didn't grow up in our methods of learning so that we can verify that they've studied appropriately and that they're prepared and equipped. They haven't gone to seminary, so to speak, and they're not ready for this. They ought not to be doing this. So they weren't sure what to do with John the Baptist when he comes around preaching repentance and baptism. And now, similarly, they're not sure what to do with Jesus, but they know they don't like it. And it seems out of place. They had a system, and these guys don't fit into the system. So if, if somebody wanted to be heard, if you wanted to have a voice, if you wanted to be a teacher, well, you needed some credentials. You needed some kind of justification, some demonstration that you fit into the system that existed. Originality, new methods, changing up the game was not prized, was not valued. Tradition and conservatism ruled the thinking of the Jewish leaders. And Jesus kind of just showed up. He just kind of showed up and that did not sit well with them. So they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, what are these things? It's a very general statement. What things are they talking about? Well, we don't know could be referring to the triumphal entry where he comes in on a donkey and people are laying their coats down and, and, and branches of trees down. They could be talking about that. Could be talking about him driving people out of the temple like he's in charge, telling people you've made my father's house a den of thieves. It could be talking about the healings that he's done almost immediately after driving people out of the temple. Could have been any of those things. But they're just saying, by what authority are you doing the stuff you're doing? I mean, they're not only do they ask what authority, they're asking, where did you get the authority? You think you have some authority, what is it? And once you've told us what it is, we also want to know who gave it to you. Who do you think you are, is what they're asking. The implication, of course, is that they are the authority. You know who gives authority to speak here? We do. And we have not given it to you. So let's hear it. Let's hear your answer for why you're doing what you're doing. The system that they operated in required that teachers have the authority to teach and the authority is given to them through this hierarchical system that is in place for the selection and the training of rabbis. Teachers went through a process. According to their system, there was no way that Jesus was authorized to be teaching and to be doing ministry the way that he was doing it, at least not without, not without these guys knowing about it. And so they put the question to him, what's the authority you have? Who gave it to you? And according to their system, they already know the answer. They're not asking a question that they're unsure of. They know the answer. He has no authority. According to our leadership, according to our methods, according to our system, because no one in our chain of command has given him any authority. So they know what the answer is. 
And once they hear it from him, then they'll be able to successfully discredit him and kick him out of here, which is what they want to do. But Jesus does not give them the answer that they expect. They expect him to answer truthfully because they've answered a direct question. What authority do you have? None. Who gave it to you? Nobody. Boom. We got you. Roasted. You're out of here. That's what they're expecting. But Jesus, in verse 24, answers them. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So... Jesus is answering a question with a question which is not abnormal for him. It's also not abnormal for rabbis at this time. So we tend to read these things and be like, oh, he got him, right? Oh, he didn't answer their question. He asked them a question. He flipped it around. Like, that's super duper normal for rabbis, okay? It's a normal procedure for debate between rabbis. It wasn't a snarky thing to do like we might think. So Jesus is immediately demonstrating, by returning their question with a question, he's immediately demonstrating, we are both teachers. I'm not less than you. I'm also a teacher. And I will play your game to some extent. And your game is, this is how you debate. You ask a question, I ask you a question on the same subject as a way to elucidate the question that you're trying to ask. So he's immediately putting himself in the correct playing field with them when they're trying to demonstrate you don't belong here. But he doesn't answer their question directly. And it's not because there's not a good answer. There is a good answer. Where did you get the authority? From my father. Who gave it to you? He did. I am God himself in the flesh here to pay your ransom. That's the answer. I have authority because I am here to rescue you. He doesn't give them that direct answer because he knows what they're trying to do. He knows what they're attempting to do and he has other business to attend to with them. So if he answers their question with some sort of human authority, if he says, I do, I give myself this authority. If he says that, then they're gonna interpret that as being from man, some sort of human authority and they're gonna refute him as a blasphemer. If he answers this correctly and truthfully, that his authority is from his father, then again, they will accuse him of blasphemy. So Jesus instead answers them with his own question, but on the same subject, which was the way rabbis did things. And he's still talking about authority. You're asking about authority? Let's talk about authority. And he says, if you answer my question, then I will be able to answer yours. He says he will tell them by what authority that he does these things. So he uses the same phrase. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So he knows what they're talking about, even though we might not know specifically what they're referring to when they say these things. Jesus clearly seems to know. And he says, I will tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer my question. And so here's Jesus's question in verse 25. He says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And so when Jesus says the baptism of John, Jesus is referring not merely to the actual baptisms that John was doing, but rather to the entirety of his ministry. He's using the phrase the baptism of John to refer to John and his ministry. He's saying John's ministry, what John was out here running around doing, is that from God or is that from man? And so he's essentially asked them the same question that they asked him, but he's pointing the question toward John the Baptist. 
Does John the Baptist have authority to do what he's doing? And he gives them two options. Either that John's ministry is from heaven, meaning from God, and therefore it would carry eternal weight and authority with it, as did the prophets of the Old Testament who spoke with authority from God, or John the Baptist's ministry is from man, meaning something just dreamed up in the mind of a man, and therefore carries no weight or authority, since John the Baptist holds no office. It seems like a simple question, but the chief priests and the elders of the people knew it wasn't simple, not for them. Jesus has got us in a weird spot. If we continue in verse 25, and they, the chief priests and the elders, discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, then he'll say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, man, these people are going to freak out. We're afraid of the crowd, for they believe that John was a prophet. We don't, but they do, and we don't want to stir up division. We don't want them to rebel against us. We don't want an uprising. And so they don't seem to truly consider the question itself about authority. They just see Jesus' question as a logical trap that they got to avoid falling into. We can't answer either way, or he'll get us. They knew John was widely considered to be a prophet by the people and that this prophet paved the way for and pointed forward to Jesus as the fulfillment of his prophecy. If they agree that John the Baptist is sent from God, then logically they must concede that Jesus has also been sent from God and is therefore the Messiah that John the Baptist was saying he was. And so therefore they must submit to him. They must acknowledge he does have authority. They must bow down and worship him. They must follow him. And that was an impossible consideration. And so they didn't even consider it. They also knew that if they denied that John the Baptist was sent from God, well, they would would be generally contradicting what the people tended to believe and might cause a social uprising if they provoked the people by saying that John the Baptist was just from men. So this was, again, for them, an impossible consideration. So they take the safe route, and they give their answer in verse 27. So they answered Jesus. We do not know. They gave a safe answer. It wasn't that they hadn't made up their minds about John the Baptist. They had. They thought he was from man. They thought he was a kook. He was crazy. He was not a voice from heaven. He was just another crazy guy spouting crazy things. That's what they believed. That was their answer, but they refused to give it. And so they said, I don't know. If you have kids, you know how infuriating the answer, I don't know, can be. Where are your shoes? I don't know. What time do you have to be there? I don't know. What time is your test? I don't know. Who broke this? I don't know. It's a really safe answer. It's safe. They know the answer. I know when my test is. It's tomorrow, 4.30. I don't want to go. I haven't studied. And if I tell you, you're going to get on me about studying and then murmur, murmur. Like, I don't know. It's easier. Wear your shoes. I don't know. 
Because when I say that, you'll go looking for them and you'll find them in the car or in my room or in the closet or in the bathroom or in the living room or in the backyard or in the front yard or wherever I left them and you'll bring them to me. It'll be awesome. All I got to do is say, I don't know. I don't know is a safe answer. They were being political. They were choosing their answer, not based on their conviction of what the truth was, but on pragmatic outcomes. It won't go well for us if we tell them, tell him what we think. If we tell him what we think, it will go badly. Let's not tell him what we think. Let's play it safe. And so here are these men who have been given charge over God's people to lead them, to shepherd them toward the truth of God, to pursue truth in general. And what are they doing? They're playing political games. And so Jesus responds in the second half of verse 27. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I told you I was going to be. I'll ask you a question. You answer it. I'll answer you. You didn't answer me. Bing, bang, boom. I'm not answering you. Jesus refuses to answer their question because they were refusing to answer his. Because the answer to his question has a significant and profound influence on the answer to their question. And they probably knew it but they were still busy playing their political games. They wanted to trap Jesus. They were not earnestly seeking truth. They were looking for the political upper hand. They wanted to trap him. They instead found that they were trapped in a question that they could not answer with any degree of success. We came here to show that you don't know what you're doing, to show that you have no authority, to show that we do have authority, and to kick you out of here. And now we have to answer a question that we can't answer. They dodged it with the I don't know to protect their own public reputation. So they refused to answer Jesus' question. Jesus refuses to answer their question directly. At least right now he doesn't answer it directly. But there was no mistaking Jesus' implication. No one who heard this exchange, not those men he was speaking to, not the crowd that had gathered, and not you or I reading this passage can miss the reality that Jesus is clearly and purposefully implying that John's ministry was indeed from God, and so, therefore, is his own. Now, these religious leaders were supposed to be discerning, supposed to be sharing the will of God with the people. They had the responsibility and the duty to determine the credibility of those who claimed to be speaking for God. But they didn't really take that responsibility seriously. They didn't actually consider what they heard and whether it was consistent with the scriptures that they'd studied their whole lives. They're blinded to the truth of John the Baptist and then, therefore, the truth of Jesus, both of whom were clearly spoken about in the text that they've been studying their whole lives. They were questioning Jesus's identity. They were questioning his authority. And Jesus was flipping it around and questioning whether they even had the competency to judge a matter such as this. Do you have authority? Where'd you get it? Who gave it to you? You're in no position to judge. You're in no position to discern this because you are not considering the issues. You're concerned with your own skins. So it would seem that that would be the end of it. Jesus has once again won an intellectual battle with the Jewish leaders and left them with nothing more to say, but Jesus is not done. In verses 28 to 32, we're going to see the first of three parables that Jesus is going to use to elaborate this point that he has just made and illuminate it a little further. And the point is that the leaders of Israel have failed to acknowledge and submit to God and his call on their lives to submit to the truth of his word. 
And these parables are also meant to illuminate the consequences of that failure. So Jesus continues to speak in verse 28. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he, this first son, answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. And so Jesus begins this parable by saying to these leaders, what do you think? He's posing a question to them. He says, what do you think about this thing I'm about to tell you? I want you to adjudicate. I want you to judge. I want you to tell me what you think of this. And Jesus presents these two sons who essentially have opposite responses to their father. And I imagine, again, if you're a parent, you probably have experienced this. Hey, pick up your room. Yes, sir. And then they wait for you to walk away and whatever. And they start playing video games again or whatever. Right? They tell you what you want to hear to get you out of their face, and they have no intention of obedience. But there are occasions when that same child will feel conviction about the disobedience, and they'll change their mind, and they'll obey, and they will clean up their room. Or the second son who says, no thanks, I'm not doing what you're asking, and then they do it. So he makes this story about these opposing viewpoints, differing words and differing actions. One says, I will, but doesn't. One says, I won't, and does. So this is this idea of words versus actions. What you say doesn't matter much unless it's matched with what you do. And Jesus asks them to make their judgment. Verse 31, which of the two, which of those two sons, did the will of his father. And so Jesus is drawing the attention of his hearers, both the crowd there and the leaders that he's speaking to, and you and I, drawing our attention to this reality of words and actions. Your actions speak louder than your words. I'm sure you've heard that. This is what Jesus is pointing to. He's saying, your words mean nothing unless they are coupled with the action. These learned men know that. They know that actions speak louder than words. They know they hear this parable and they hear of one son who says, nah, I don't think I want to do what you're asking, but then does it, has done something better, even though he's rebelled initially, he's turned, he's repented, and he's done the will of his father. Whereas the, the other son says, oh, absolutely, yes, I'm on it, I'm not doing that. His actions demonstrate his heart. Both actions demonstrate the heart of the son. And so he asks them, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. The first. The one who said, nah, but then changed his mind and was obedient. That was the one who did the will of the father. They agree with Jesus that the actions of the son who said he would go demonstrate his heart. Show him to be a liar. While the actions of the son who is initially defiant also demonstrate his heart and show him to be repentant. A son who loves and honors his father even after openly rebelling against him with his lips. 
So now Jesus has them where he wants them. They've admitted that the obedient actions of the initially rebellious are better than the actions of those who only honor their father with their lips. And he responds, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Yikes. Jesus is doing something here he rarely does, giving a really straightforward interpretation of his own parable to the people he's telling the parable to. But he starts with the result. He starts with the consequence. He starts with the outcome. And the outcome will be that tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's going to explain why in a minute, but that's the outcome. Now, he's talking about tax collectors and prostitutes. These are two categories of people that in 2023 McKinney, Texas, sad to say, we esteem these two groups much greater than the first century Jews did. Tax collectors for us are just, it's just the IRS. It's part of the government. I don't like them. I don't think they're doing a good job. I think there are too many of them doing stuff and they're giving them guns. There's all this stuff happening with IRS, but it's part of our government, it's part of our system, and we, you know, we bought into the system because it's part of our, you know, how we've set things up and the laws, and I don't like it, but it is what it is. You could have a friend who works for the IRS, and you wouldn't be like, ah, why do you work for the IRS? Be, oh, he works for the IRS. This is his job. Somebody's got to do it. He's not the guy making the decisions. He's just clicking the things and typing in the numbers. But that's not what they thought of as tax collectors. For us, it's just this ambiguous group, the IRS. For them, tax collectors are part of their own people who have said, I will work for this occupying force. Rome has come, conquered the land, conquered the people, and now they're collecting, collecting taxes from us to continue to expand their kingdom beyond the boundaries of this, what is historically been our land. It's not ours anymore because they're occupying us and they are suppressing us and they're holding us back. And now they're taking our money. And who is actually taking our money? John, Billy, Sammy, down the street, guy I grew up with. He's now working for this occupying force and taking my money, taking his own family's money for what? A little paycheck, a little bit higher step on the ladder of the social hierarchy of Rome. There was hatred for those people. It was not just the ambiguous IRS. Tax collectors were genuinely hated because of who they were and what they represented. They represented a sellout to this conquering, invading force. And prostitutes, sadly to say, in our modern culture, are less bad than they used to be. Today we have terms floating around like sex worker to somehow make it sound good. The sexualization of our culture has made things so pervasive that the idea of prostitution, while a Christian would still say is repulsive and not good, isn't the same. We don't think of prostitutes the way that they did. These were the lowest of the low, the most outcast, the worst kind of people, tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus is using them these two particular categories, to make clear the extreme difference between the men that are standing before him who think of themselves and most of the people think of them as the highest, the greatest, and the best. He's comparing them with the lowest and the worst. He's saying, who's getting into the kingdom of God first? These people. They're getting in before you. Now, when he says before you, this could be literally chronologically, 
Meaning, yes, you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but they're going in first because they have repented first. But it could also mean that they're going instead of you. You're not going, and they are. And if that's what he means, then the sting of this statement is even greater. So Jesus tells them that either they aren't getting into the kingdom at all, or at least they will be preceded by the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And then he explains why in verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So he begins by saying, John came to you in the way of righteousness. He's saying, John the Baptist was walking in righteousness. John the Baptist was doing the will of his father. John the Baptist is indeed a true prophet sent from God. He came to you in the way of righteousness. He is in step with, in line with the will of God. So he's being clear that John the Baptist, the question I asked you about him, is he from heaven or from man? He's from heaven. You think he's from man, and you were afraid to say so, but I'm telling you the truth. He's from heaven. And you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So he's answering his own question that he put back to them and back in verse 25. So John the Baptist has come, and he's preached repentance. And that message was indeed from God, which is what these prostitutes and tax collectors were doing and what the religious leaders were not doing, repenting. John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the prostitutes and the tax collectors heard the call for repentance and they repented. And that was obvious to all. Jesus says, even when you saw it, leaders, chief priests, elders, When you saw them repenting, you still didn't believe it. You saw people that you thought would never repent, never turn from their ways, they're the worst of the worst, and you see them repenting of their sins because of the call that John the Baptist brings, and you still don't consider, you still don't give any weight to it, you still don't acknowledge what God is doing and that he sent this man. You see genuine repentance in the hearts of the worst of the worst, And you don't change your minds and believe him. This phrase, change your minds and believe him, change your mind, that's literally repentance. He's saying in the face of the gospel, in the face of the good news, you did not repent and believe. Like the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. So these social outcasts, these tax collectors and prostitutes, initially say no to God. They are self-serving. They are self-righteous. They are finding their identity, finding their hope, finding their joy in themselves and their own lives and their own actions. And they're saying no to God. Go into the vineyard. Nope. But ultimately, they receive the gift of faith. Ultimately, they do change. Ultimately, they do the will of God. Ultimately, they do repent. And according to Jesus, they get to enter into his kingdom. They are that son who said no, but ultimately did go into the vineyard like their father told them to because they changed their mind. They repented. These religious leaders, these chief priests, these elders of the people say yes to God quickly, easily. Yes, Lord. Yes. I study your word. I memorize the scriptures. Yes, I will do all the things of God. I will live a life that is holy and righteous 
but they are excluded from the kingdom because they don't actually submit. When they hear the good news, they do not change. They do not repent. They do not actually do the will of God. And they're therefore excluded from the kingdom. They are the son who gladly said, oh, I go, sir. Yes, sir, to their father. But then they don't put the actual action behind the words. The righteousness that these men possess, these chief priests, these elders, the righteousness that they possess is a man-made righteousness, a self-righteousness. It's based on their appearance, how they dress, how they're able to answer the questions, how they're able to look the part. It's all about my words. If I say the right things and look the right way, then I am golden. My ability to enter the kingdom is based on me and what I can do. Righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees is what Jesus told us. Jesus says, you must have a righteousness greater than them because their righteousness is not great. Their righteousness comes from themselves. You need a righteousness that's perfect, that's spotless, that's earned for you by Christ. And that's what they don't see. Jesus is making it clear that John the Baptist is indeed a true prophet and that he, Jesus, is that greater one to whom John the Baptist was pointing. So then the answer to their question about Jesus' authority is now unmistakable. It is now obvious. But Jesus knew this is how it was going to go down. Jesus knew they were not going to accept John the Baptist and that they were not going to accept him. He talked about it back in Matthew 17. The disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They were confused about this. And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Jesus knew this conversation was coming. Jesus knew that they would and did reject John the Baptist. He knew that they would and did reject him. And Jesus will be even more explicit, explicit about this question of his own authority in the final chapter of Matthew, when we get to Matthew 28. And Jesus is with his disciples after the resurrection, and he says to them in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How much authority? All authority. Just here? No. In heaven and on earth. All authority is his. That's the answer. And so what's the purpose of this passage? What are we doing? Why does Matthew include this? Why does Matthew tell us this story? Well, certainly so that we can see and understand clearly the authority of Jesus and the pervasive resistance of the Jewish leadership to that good news of his authority, of his coming, and that we may then be able to understand how they might come to plot and act out upon his death. But in regard to the parable that Jesus tells about these two sons, the reader, the people standing there and you and I reading this passage together would naturally and should naturally ask ourselves, which of those two sons am I? We should identify with the tax collector 
and the prostitute who are like that first son. They reject God at first, but then embrace his will and obey him. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are a Christian, that's your story. You once hated God and loved your sin. You once told God, no thanks. I got this. And at some point, Jesus invaded. Jesus revealed himself to you by the Spirit, showed you the truth of his word that was illuminated to your heart so that you might believe on who he is. And your heart was changed forever. You went from hating God and loving sin to loving God and hating sin. This is what happens to the Christian. They are a person who says to God, no thanks, and then they change their mind. They change their mind because God has given them the Spirit. The Spirit has revealed the truth of God's Word to their heart, and now they love and trust in their Savior, Jesus. And they change their mind about their sin, and they repent, and they go into the vineyard like they've been asked. This is what it means to be a Christian. But the danger is that we might believe that we're the first son because we do all the right stuff. I go to church. I dress nice. I don't cuss. I don't watch the yucky movies. I don't listen to the yucky music. I don't watch the weird YouTube videos. I'm not on Twitter, X, whatever Elon's calling it. I don't do those things. I'm crushing it. When you look at my life, you see awesome. And so I am like that first son because I have rejected my sin and now I'm crushing it. But if my hope and my identity and my value and my worth are found in those things, my performance, then perhaps I've lost sight of the truth. Perhaps I am not that first son. Perhaps I'm the second son who says yes to God with his lips, but my heart is far from him. And that's the danger, is that we might believe that we're the first son because we look at our behavior to determine whether or not we are part of his kingdom rather than looking at Christ's behavior. What has he done? Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for that very contradiction between their words and their actions back in chapter 15 where he quotes Isaiah 29 to them and he says, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. So if you are in here today and you have not said yes to Jesus, if your heart is far from him, if you are happy to say no to him right now, but you hear this story and you think, maybe there is something else going on, let me encourage you to pray, to speak to your God, to talk to him, to ask him to change you, to give you this heart of repentance that would actually change your mind and have you rejecting sin and embracing the Savior. Because that's the only thing that can do it. You can't sit in that seat and decide for yourself, I think I will do this now. Because that starts you on the path towards self-righteousness. I will do good enough so that God will love me. Because that's not how it works. God loves you. And then he gives you a new heart that changes your posture towards sin. And now you can do what he's asked you to do to some degree for his glory because of his goodness and mercy and grace to you in Christ. This is the story of Christianity, that we are broken. 
Sin has overwhelmed us. Sin consumes us. We are a slave to sin unless Jesus changes us. Unless by his perfect life, this life that he lived without sin, this one guy who got it right, this one guy who actually obeyed God, this one guy who actually fulfills the laws of God where we cannot, no matter how hard we try, that he lives this perfect life so that it may count for us. I need a perfect life, and I don't have one. Jesus has one, and he's given it to me. I must die for my sin because that's the punishment. But Jesus has come and died for me. And then he did not stay dead because death and sin are not stronger than him. He is stronger than death. He is stronger than sin. He has overcome them. Through this life and this death and this resurrection, he has made it possible for you and I to be counted as righteous, to have an actual righteousness, not this self-righteousness, not this pretend righteousness that we make up. He has made it possible for you and I to be rescued because he loves us, not because you deserve it, not because you're good enough. You're not. I'm not. I don't deserve his love. I don't deserve his mercy. I don't deserve his grace. And yet he's given it to me. I can't explain it apart from he is good. That's who he is. That's who Jesus is talking about. He's talking about his father who has sent him. I have come to rescue you. So which son are we? We ought to be a tax collector and a prostitute in terms of this parable who once said no to him, but then our minds were changed. So this ought not to be a thing that makes us guilty and makes us go home and wring our hands. Oh no, am I pretending? Do I have self-righteousness? Oh no. That shouldn't be the, that shouldn't be the result. The result should be an exuberant, joyful cry to the Lord. You are good. I am not. Thank you. Thank you for being my God. Thank you for giving me your son. Thank you for all that you have done for me, that I can be counted as righteous, that I am a tax collector, that I am a prostitute. I did tell you no, but you changed me. You changed my heart. What a good God we have. How incredible is this? This is the good news. This is the gospel. This is what the kingdom of God is about. His name being made great because of the way he fixes the problem of our sin. It's incredible. It's amazing. So Christians, those of you in here who genuinely love and trust in Christ, do not let this parable make you wring your hands. Let this set your hands free to worship him to be excited, to be joyful, to remember how good is this God that he would set you free. You're no longer a slave to, to sin. You're a slave to righteousness because of what Christ has done. And if you have not experienced that joy, if you do not know him, but you're curious, you want to know, come talk to me after. Come find one of our pastors, one of our elders. Find one of our members. Talk to somebody. Let us pray with you. This is good news, that the kingdom of God has come. John the Baptist came and paved the way. Jesus came, and he did the work. It is finished, he said. And now all we do is we rejoice. We wait for him to return.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word is good, that you are good, that you are good to reveal yourself to us through your word. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that because of your grace and your mercy to us in Christ, because of your great love with which you loved us, you made us alive together with Christ. You've rescued us, that you've made us your own, that we were once tax collectors and prostitutes who said, no, I will not go. And then you changed us, that our mind was changed. And we now attempt in our futile way to be faithful. And we don't get it right even then. But Jesus has come and he's paid for all of our sin. Our past sin, our present sin, our future sin has been paid for in Christ. And so we ask that you'd help us. Help us to see this correctly, that it might cause us to rejoice, that it might cause us to celebrate because it's worthy of celebration. What an incredible gift. And so we pray that you'll help us, Lord, to not be mournful, to not be so introspective that we forget the glory and majesty of this gift. Help us to see you rightly because we cannot do anything good apart from you, including seeing you rightly. So we pray that you would continue to open our eyes, continue to increase our understanding of you. Give us great joy in our salvation. We love you. We thank you that you love us. And we pray that you'd be near to us as we continue to worship you this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.